Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza, and today's episode is brought to you by Healthy Nest. Go to www.healthynesting.com for the most amazing baby brand of diapers and wipes and products for cleaning that are healthy for the environment and for your babies. Today's guest is the toddler whisperer, Dr. Tova Klein, who wrote this amazing book, How Toddlers Thrive, What Parents Can Do Today for Children Ages 2 to 5 to Plant Seeds of Lifelong Success. It's such an awesome book, and she really is the toddler whisperer. Tova Klein is the director of Barnard College's Center for Toddler Development and an associate professor in the Department of Barnard Psychology. She knows toddlers better than anyone. So it was such a pleasure to have her on the podcast. We're talking about, of course, going back to school or daycare and how to help children adjust to this new experience. We're talking about siblings during COVID-19 and beyond, how siblings get along and what happens when they don't. And also I enlisted Dr. Klein to answer some of your listener direct messages to my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast because they were specific to toddlers and preschoolers. And I thought it would be really fun to hear the wisdom of Tova Klein. And you know what, honestly, I mean, I'm in the city. And so I get to see, I feel like we're six steps ahead of everywhere else in the country. The children are adjusting. Like I see more and more children wearing masks, little, 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 and I don't see them freaked out by other people's masks. Mm -hmm. Whereas early on you did. So it's interesting to see the evolution. It's almost like a big advantage for people who've stayed in the city. Yeah. You have to come back. And then people in other parts of the country that are just getting the mask rules now, it's like just interesting to watch. That is really interesting. Yeah. I wonder also my concern about masks with the younger kids is really how they're, how they're learning to pick up emotional cues and, and language while people are wearing masks. Yeah. I'm not as, I do think that they probably are going to adjust just fine from the fear and weirdness of having people yeah. covered in masks. But I have wondered how, the, especially for the really young ones, and I wanted to ask you what people can do to offset that difference. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a big question and nobody knows. Like we're looking into clear masks for our yeah. teachers. 
Um, I just saw a recommendation. Actually, it was in the New York Times. I, I don't know where they're getting their information. You know, like saying, oh, if you could wear a face shield, wear them. But that's not the medical recommendation, you know? So, right. I mean, I would love us at the Tyler Center to just be wearing face shields, but that's not, you know, within health code. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I'm more concerned about children, very young children who are with people in masks all day. So, like, if, you're in a childcare situation and let's say you have an eight hour provider, yeah. you know, at a daycare center that reopens or then I am about a two hour program, honestly, you know, and then I keep thinking, am I just minimizing this? I, I just feel like children are so adaptable. We're going to adapt to relating with our eyes, with our bodies, with other cues that children will pick up on. I think children pick up on everything. They pick up on tone. We know this. They pick up on tone. They right. pick up on body. They pick up on the whole, you know, they're sort of reading all of it, particularly your firstborns who monitor everything under the sun, right? Right. Um, and I just wonder if they'll adjust. Infants are different, obviously. Yeah. Um, but most infants in this country are not in care outside of their primary caregivers for very long, right? Because the country doesn't offer it. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, it's a little bit of a moot point for most babies, but you know, then that harps to like if you have a caregiver who comes into the house, I would want to come up with a way that they can see their mouth with that person. Yeah, that they're not masked if they come every single day. Like to to think about that, particularly for babies. Yeah. Um, we yeah, were looking so, at the hospital into a while ago into getting masks that were safe enough because clear masks are totally approved for schools if you can even get hold of them, but they're not for hospitals and for the newborns who were in the hospital for longer periods of time. Right. The idea right. that they wouldn't have, wouldn't yeah. be able to see a face was really just daunting. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But so for the preschoolers, they'll adjust. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, let's not say I'm like, I yeah. mean, I don't want to say that publicly, but it's like, I mean, as you know, children are far more resilient than we give them credit for, but this is going on a long time. I so <laughs> um, on the one hand, I do think children adapt. Like when I see children in the park, I just feel like initially, and I'm in the park every single day, right? It was like nobody was looking at each other. We didn't know what to do about the mask. Now people are saying hi. There's much more interaction, even amongst adults. You like know, they've hi. even learned to say hi instead of just smile. Yeah. Those, those and, little adjustments. And, you know, we were sort of all looking away because we were all sort of like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going on. And we were fearful, right? Like in March, April, we were wearing masks in the beginning here, right? So, but yeah, people are saying hi, they're stopping and chatting, um, you know, socially distanced with a mask on. There's much more interaction and I see the children watching that, you know, like their little faces. Um, but you don't get the smile to smile, which is what you tend to get on the promenade park, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the children are hopefully getting that at home, right? There, and we know the primary caregiver is the most important person. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was wondering about places like China where people are masked outside. I mean, I've been to China twice, both, well, Shanghai, but also this very rural area. And people wear masks there just for air quality or illness or whatever. 
but I don't know that teachers do. Like, that's what I was wondering about. Do we have any data out of, say, Beijing? Right. Where I've never been, where people evidently wear masks a lot. Um, yeah, I've been scouring and it's been really hard to find an answer to this. And I also don't know, for the younger kids. Yeah. Just, it, it I feel be, like we, we have to think about relating as more than just the mouth. Mm-hmm. That relating is so much more than that. And, you know, that's that whole area of emotions. And much of it centers on this, but it's also the whole face. It's right. the eyes, the eyes. It's the body. It's, I mean, children pick up on insincerity right away, right? If, if you're smiling, but your whole body is not, they know that, right? So it's not just a smile. Right. We, we just have to get really thoughtful about that physiological connection and response. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to take practice, but it, maybe it is just that. It's just, we're going to get better at it and they're going to get better at picking up. Maybe they'll become really good in this particular cohort of kids at reading other kinds of cues and not depending on facial expression. Right. And it'll just be another strength. Think about how much you work with parents. I work with parents around tone, right? You know, when I'm, I mean, I may not be calling it tone, but I say, yeah, but you're saying that to your child or you're smiling but everything else about you is telling them you're upset. Yeah. You know, or they'll say, just tell me the words, just tell me the word. And I always think to myself, I'm not that kind of psychologist, but I don't say that. It's like, (laughs) I see, you know, if it was as simple as words, that would be easy. Let's work on what's really upsetting you about this. Right. So you are working on that, on the whole system of tone of body expression. um, And children pick up on all of it. So I don't know why they wouldn't adjust because they have to. And again, it's those children in their earliest, you know, so infants are a special case. And then that like, I don't know, you know, some youngish toddler that we have to think about what does that do for their formation? But all else sort of good in their life or good enough or stable enough I guess I'm less worried about it than others. And maybe I'll be proved wrong, but I think relating is much more than that. Hi, new friends. I'm Jackie Schimmel, philanthropist, motivational speaker, glowing wife, animal rights activist, and a shoulder to cry on. Not really. I'm a crazy bitch, but a hoot and a half. If you haven't listened to my podcast, The Bitch Bible, brace yourself, pour yourself a stiff drink, and get ready to laugh your ass off or cry. Make sure you subscribe yourself to the Bitch Bible podcast right now. You're going to effing love it. As much as this whole thing seems really daunting and it is going on so much longer so mm-hmm. that I, I feel like people are tired, uh, like every time I say, but kids are actually really resilient and they just ultimately need loving support and boundaries mm-hmm. and the rest can kind of get pretty bad. But now I, it's going on and on. So I don't feel as confident when I say that, but I still, right. I, I agree with you. I, I do still believe that they're so adaptable and, you know, it does require that we have some kind of thoughtfulness about our stability and ability yeah. to be loving and supporting. And our sadness, I think what, what's coming out now is, you know, the sadness of the adults, right? Yeah. That, um, you know, it was one thing to harp on high school graduations and college graduations. I saw my college son get through and his girlfriend and all his friends get through the 
lack of a college graduation. They're like, it's a ceremony. You know, he's like, no, no, mom. The big thing that I missed was that I didn't get all those final months with people who I care about who I'll never see again. Or Not the ceremony. No, he was like, it was a ceremony. Yeah. He's like, once I got over the, say, you know, we were all going to go, et cetera, et cetera. But that's such a small piece. But I think as adults, it was a place to put, if I hear one more person say, oh, those poor kids who didn't get their high school prom. I'm like, yeah, maybe for those first graduating in their family or for children who really, you know, high school graduation is no guarantee and that prom is a big deal. Yeah. But for our kids, like, come on, you know, like, so I was trying to be very sympathetic to my niece and my nephew, like high school seniors, you know, I I think that's just where, yeah, where we were putting our sadness. So now fast forward, parents of young children, you know, we're moving into a fall that's very unknown. We're moving into a whole year ahead of us that's very unknown. Whereas we were working in the short term, you know, we were like, yeah. how do we get our programs online? How do we stay connected to our children? My teachers did, I guess all of us did at the Toddler Center, an amazing virtual program. I never in a million years thought that would happen. That is remarkable. Remarkable. And then parents want an extension. We extended it into July. Toddlers, right? And it was what? all about connection and relationships and how do we how do we translate our emotional program to a computer? It was wild. Like, um, but we did it. And then we were like, wow, we did that. You know, let's make sure we document this in case we ever have to do it again. Let's hope we never have to. Now I'm like, make sure those notes are in order. Make sure you're putting the details in. Make sure. But I think there's a lot of sadness going on for adults. And I think children are getting sad. Um, and I'm hearing a ton about children's fantasy lives, like imaginations, you know, you can say on the one hand blossoming, which is beautiful, but all kinds of either fixations within that imagination, not just wanting to be a baby again, but living in a baby world for four and five-year-olds, you know, taking on the persona of a character, an animal, but really holding tight to it. And I'm hearing it enough that I'm beginning to think, oh, it's just this week I'm hearing more about it. I'm like, oh, so interesting. interesting. But, but again, I think what the children are picking up on is something from the parents. I'm not, I can't quite put it to link it yet. It's something from the parents because like you're saying, if you set up a good enough life in your home or wherever you've fled to, if you're in the Northeast, you know, it's like they'll take their cues from us. So I think they're really picking up on a lot of, the adult, obviously worry for good reason. Parents are worried and uncertainty and sadness. Yeah. And that's kind of being translated to children. And then other children who are just thriving. I mean, the right, they're living their best life. <laughs> they're living their best life. The sibling relationships are thriving in so many families. I want to talk more about that because I, I feel like this is such a cool opportunity for those who are siblings where they just don't have the choice to go off with other friends. So they have to make, find the friendship within their relationship. How do you, if they're starting to get tired of each other and you're in a small space, how do you give them space or teach them to get space from each other? I always think like find, even if they're sharing a room, a, a sacred spot, even if it's a pillow that no, you know, that that's where you go when you need to be having Separate. alone time, but that's hard with really young kids to understand. 
I've been actually pleasantly surprised by, you know, what parents are talking about with sibling relationships blossoming and it's, it's a big silver lining um, of this pandemic. Some of it is that they can't, the older children can't go off with friends, but also they're not going to school. So look, I had one parent say to me, you know, my first grader was suddenly home and my three-year-old was home too. And we were trying to work and all summer it's been like that. You know, there's no camp. Yeah. Um, They might be seeing a neighbor, but they're together and they're just playing at a whole new level and laughing and I'm sure fighting, but then repairing it because they've got each other. And I keep hearing this scenario from parents of there's a bond between my children, particularly if there's two, there is a great number. Three is harder, of course, (laughs) but a bond that they feel like just wouldn't have been there otherwise. I always tell parents of young children, if they're sharing a room and you need space for them, that the space actually starts off with something concrete, which is giving them a box to put some special things in that's only for them, giving them a shelf. When my children were young, all three of them shared a room, not just young, they shared a room until the oldest was 13, almost 14. There were three of them and they each always had a drawer, a small drawer, like on a night table size thing. And they each had a shelf. And on that went only their things and nobody else could touch them. I don't think anybody ever dared touch. Like they recognized- It's sacred. Yeah, this is sacred. This is our room. We sleep in here together. We play in here together. But this is my brother's. And that was very respected. So I'll tell parents, you know, shoeboxes are good, you know, way to do it. And the child can color it and decorate it, stickers on it. And then they can put whatever they want in there. And that's theirs. And just having that sense of this is mine is often calming so that they can then go back sort of to the fight with the sibling that siblings do. You know, it's up, down, high, low with siblings. Yeah. I love you. I don't love you. And it goes back and forth. Um, But I think the other thing that's happened in this pandemic is that parents, because they've got this impossible task of working, possibly trying to be a homeschool teacher, which they shouldn't be and they're not, and then the children need to be occupied, the parents have in a really positive way pulled out. So they're there. Yes. The child can come to them. But it's the thing that I've espoused my entire career, which is benign neglect. Yes, yes, yes. Here, here. Back off, back off, let them fight, let them work it out. The parents have been forced to do that because there's only so much of you to go around. That's right. Um, So if you have to really focus on a deadline or work or emails or whatever it is, we can say, well, that's not ideal for children, and it's not. But again, in the adaptability department, the children have had to adapt to it. And I think that's been good for siblings, that the parents have pulled out, and it gives them more space to work out their own conflict. And if you work out your own conflict with some parent support when you need it, but mainly can work it out, you are bonded in the tightest way. I mean, this is your ally this is the person you fight with. This is also the person who looks out for you. That's your lifelong gift. That's the reason we have second or third or fourth children for our other children, <laughs> right? Is you want them to have each other for life, but they can't if the parents are always intervening 
then they really don't have each other as a special relationship. So that I think is really positive. Love that. I love that. And it is really positive and the bonds are so beautiful. They're they're also just getting like, you're probably going to see at the toddler center, the kids coming in so much more competent in their own self-care. Yeah. Just again, out of necessity, like you, you could say it all day, helping kids, you know, being autonomy supportive and helping them do things for themselves. But now we can't do everything for them. We just don't have the bandwidth, including solve the conflicts between siblings, which I just think is such a beautiful point that you can bond through getting through that conflict. But even with the small things, like just being able to entertain yourself if nobody will play with you. That's a really hard thing to artificially create. And now anybody who was, you know, had a challenge before at being able to just let a a child do their thing, that benign neglect that you're talking about, I think Mm -hmm. everybody's really gotten there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's a loving benign neglect. It's kind of of what we do to our second and third and fifth (laughs) borns. But it's very hard to do with a firstborn yeah. or an only child, which is to say, I'm here, I'm folding the laundry. That's what I always used to say to parents before the pandemic. Just refold and refold and refold your laundry, right? Or yeah, um, tip. yeah fix up the drawers in the, uh, the child's bedroom so that you're there, but you're occupied. But, you, you know, traditionally, you couldn't be occupied on your phone or your computer. And, and again, even in a pandemic, that's not great for children. But now you have to be. And so the challenge has been so much for parents, I think, to figure out how to maybe set up a workstation. And then if you do have that only child or say a child and then an infant, so you only really have one who can play at the moment, setting up a workstation for them next to you with their drawing materials or stickers or something for them to do to say, you know, mommy or daddy is working and you can work here too. So to give the child a way to be with them, but to give them something to do. And it's a challenge. Some children really can rise to that and some children just can't. And that's going to continue to be a challenge because many parents, certainly in professional positions, aren't going to be going back to offices, even if they wish they were. (laughs) They're not going to be. Um, So that challenge will continue. For people who have jobs or careers that have been fulfilling, not every minute is fulfilling, but that have been fulfilling, going to the office can be a really nice routine, even if it's stressful. Yeah. And that's been taken from many people. Many of us have lost that. You know, that it's also social. It's also colleagues. It's relationships. And we probably underestimated how important that was in a day-to-day and that it takes ritual away. I talked with my daughters about, they are actually not going back to school. We are going to be in California where they are not able to open the schools yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we talked about what the plan is. My younger daughter because we were picking out their backpacks, even though they don't have anywhere to take them. I want older to <laughs> 10 and 13, but they always have this ritual of getting a new right. backpack and right. just they're ex- setting up their stuff for the year. So we're doing it anyway, even though they're setting up to do homework stations. Mm-hmm. But my younger daughter said, you know what? I'd like to have a ritual every morning 
where I walk around the block and come back to school. Love that. And oh, I she's, thought it, wasn't yeah. that wise? I thought that was such a very idea because those rituals are so meaningful to us. And to know that you need to find one, I felt great about that. And I, I wondered if you had heard of any ideas like that for younger children to help this, you know, cause we're doing changes. I remember just the silly things. Like every time I would go into work, the coffee cart guy mm-hmm. every day would already have the coffee ready. Right. I felt like it was the beginning of a, a sitcom with the music playing. And he, you know, we, we had our little ritual, but it, it entailed laughing and smiling and very little conversation but it always started my day in this way. And I just wonder like, how are we going to find those different rituals mm-hmm. and what for younger children, I yeah. guess they, they'll find them, but we can find some. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's such an important question because, you know, rituals are such a big part of relationships. So that there are t- two things, you know, rituals are part of relationships. So your example of going into your workplace and having a coffee cart person you know, he knows you, he sees you coming and he knows what time you come. He knows what you order, right? That's part of a relationship. You smile at each other, you wave, he hands it off. Like all of that is ritual and relationship. And I think Mm -hmm. the same is true at home, right? Our bedtime rituals for children, sure, they're rituals from the parents' side of winding down the day, winding, helping the child wind down so that they're going to go to sleep. But for the for the child, actually, for both the parent and child, it's also relating. You know, it might be snuggly, it's calming. Um, yes, it's separation and goodbye, but there's there's a relating that comes with it. So rituals are what get you through the day. And for young children, it's also what helps them become independent. Right? If I know every morning that I get my coat off my little hook, um, and put it on for school. At first, my dad or mom helps me do it, but eventually I do it on my own, either because I want to or because teachers say you have to when you get to school. Mm-hmm. Um, but that ritual of getting out the door can teach independence. Or if you have an older sibling who does it, that child says, oh, I want to be like my older sibling. So, you know, independence comes through rituals, but so does organization, mm-hmm. right? It's, you know, we always talk about schedules that, you know, children don't tell time the way we do. They're not looking at a watch or a clock, but they count on the rituals to move them through a schedule. And every early childhood classroom, good one has that, right? First we put the books away and then we sit on the rug. That, that's schedule, but it's also ritual. So at home, I think parents have naturally developed these in a new way. So going back to the example of, you know, pictures or stories that I've heard of parents setting up like a workstation next to their workstation and the child sort of comes running, you know, for that mm-hmm. parent's meeting or whatever it's going to be. And they sit at their station. There's certainly children more involved with cooking if they weren't already cooking with parents yes. or helping with cooking. For parents who have an outside, an outside could be a window box, an outside could be a garden or a yard or inside where you have plants and children are watering plants with parents. And, you know, maybe a parent says, oh, it's Tuesday. It's the plant watering. The child has, you know, watering can or a cup that is small enough that they can handle it on their own. And they go around and do those plants. And, you know, maybe it's the things that the parent did 
when the child, you know, was napping or at the end of the day when the child was asleep and now they're doing it together. But all of those rituals say to a child, things are still okay. We still do this. Uh, on Tuesdays, we always water the plants. You know, maybe it's feeding the dog. The child's now pouring the food in. So it might be something you did before. It might be something new. And then the other rituals that are new are Zoom. So I'm certainly somebody who was not a tech fan and still am not. I mean, I can't wait for the day that it can take more of a back seat. I don't think it'll ever <laughs> go as back seat. Well, not for a while as we want it to, but I was not a fan of it. I didn't really feel like children needed it except to relate to right. faraway relatives, grandparents, maybe an aunt or uncle, something like that. But now children might be having regular Zoom time with a grandparent who actually lives not that far away, but you know, initially they couldn't see, or if there's a surge in somebody's area, maybe they can't see now, or you can't see as often. Maybe it's a grandparent mm-hmm. who takes care of you every day. And now you're only seeing them once a week for health reasons. But those Zoom rituals have become really important, right? And it might be a grandparent who's reading with a child or playing, you know, a game with them. Uh, Somebody was just telling me about uh, their child playing, and I put playing in quotes because the child is young, but playing Connect Four or the child's version of the Connect Four with one of the grandparents. It just emerged into this daily ritual now. So I think all of those pieces are important. And when school starts, I think many parents, if they're not able to do in-person school for the younger children, may equally opt out of it. And I don't think Mm -hmm. there's anything wrong with that, right? If there's lots of ways for children to be playing in real time, they don't have to be on Zoom school. But if they are, let's say, part of the time or at some point all of the time on virtual school, then there are ways to create rituals. Like we're going to have our breakfast together. We're going to brush teeth as if you were getting out the door. And then maybe you change your clothes at that point. Maybe you get out of your pajamas at that point to say, now it's school time. Or you set up, you know, here's your chair and and the computer. Do you want to pick a stuffed animal to be with you? So something that signals, and now we start our school time. But I think that's true for your elementary age children too, that, you know, giving them a place in a space that's consistent is really helpful, but also coming up with that ritual. Do you want to take, you know, a special toy with you, you know, to be on the table while you're at, at school today on the computer, something that marks for them. Now it's the start of something else. That I think has been one of the hardest pieces of sort of pandemic time. And I think just about every adult listening to this will know that we all are losing track of time because we're not changing place. We're not, we're not even going to a coffee shop to do our work. You know, if you're a writer, maybe you sat somewhere Mm -hmm. else to do your writing some days. We're not going anywhere for the most part. And so it's very hard for us to mark time. It's even harder for children because they have such a poor sense of time. Toddlers have almost no sense of time. Preschoolers equally almost none. And young elementary school-aged children have some sense of time, but it's really schedule-oriented or ritual-oriented. When I put my coat on, it's time to go to school, and they start to get a sense of, after breakfast, how many minutes before I actually have to be at the door. 
Um, so they need those cues. Yeah, so any type of ritual will help. And it could be even that you go outside, you know, again, depending on where you live, if you can go outside and play for even 15 minutes before you're going to start school, because this is playtime before school. And then when school's done, maybe you go out for Mm -hmm. an hour and do some outside activity, you know, at home or in a park or something. Um, All of those pieces, chunking the day really, really helps, right? We have breakfast. Even if you're not doing school, we have some kind of playtime. We go outside, we come back for lunch, gives the child a rhythm. And you could even come up with a schedule, not the crazy schedules that we all did at the beginning. I saw parents doing like literally every half hour. And I thought, oh no, this isn't going to work. But I got it. People were really working so hard to say, how do I get some structure in my day in March when the rug was pulled out from under us? But now what I would say is, you know, if you have, like imagine a whiteboard or it could be a piece of paper or you say breakfast and maybe you give your child two choices. Do you want Cheerios or eggs if you're one who cooks in the morning or could be Cheerios and cornflakes? And they pick one, you know, that's choice and that's agency. And then we're going to have a morning play activity. So the parent maybe has a meeting or something. You say, you know, what would you like your morning activity to be? Would you like to do block building? We take the blocks out. The child says, no, I'd like to do, you know, watercolors or paints. You set that up. Again, it's choice. Then you go outside, you know, so then you can have a morning activity, a lunch, a downtime, an afternoon activity. And it gives the child some agency in choosing. And I think when you write it down, either if you want to do it in a notebook or you do it on a whiteboard of some kind, the child actually sees the rhythm of the day in the way that they would if they were going to a daycare center or they were going to school. And that helps organize children. I think it's also very calming. And then they can run off and play. Oh, I chose blocks. Not that they can't switch. You know, they can find something else. But they feel this sense of, I made a choice and now I can do it. And that's really what's so important about early socialization, particularly for your three and four-year-olds. And, um, and you know, and two-year-olds are all about, don't tell me what to do. Uh, so little choices can be really helpful, right? Do you want, should we read this book or that book? And then the mm-hmm. child chooses one. It gives them a sense of agency, a really strong sense of agency. You know, as a parent, particularly if you're a parent who works outside the home and hasn't been with your child all the time, and then we have this overlay of incredible stress and uncertainty, that is hard to manage on a day-to-day basis, right? Some days better than others. Then we're probably a little less aware of how many emotions a child goes Mm -hmm. through on a given day. So there's a lot of things wrapped up right now that lead to emotional expression, meltdowns, not their best selves for children or for parents. Um, But for for young children, it's part of self is to learn how to have those emotions, not be afraid of the negative emotions, and to know that someone's there to help you get through them, not take those emotions away. And that's a big differentiation. And you know, one of the things I've noticed through the pandemic is parents being so yeah. hard on themselves, right? Being a loving parent is enough. And that doesn't mean that your mm-hmm. child's happy all the time. 
And if you're there, if you're saying to them, it's a hard day, things are hard right now. I know you miss your friends. I know you wish that we could go to that playground that you love, whatever it is that they're missing. They need that support, but they don't have to be happy all the time. Even before the pandemic, nobody needs to be happy all the time. And so then that gets into how as a parent, do you allow your child Mm -hmm. to be upset, to feel distressed and not take it as a failure on the parent's part, right? And for for parents um, in general, again, not in the age of COVID, but this era gives us an extra layer, an extra context. Allowing children to be distressed for many parents Mm -hmm. is very hard. Either they get upset too, or they want to take it away. Don't be upset. Don't be upset. Um, and this goes on through life. This is older. Right. It's like the fear that too, you won't have right? a happy kid if they're not happy all the time. Like we forget that nobody's time. happy all the time, which has nothing to do with that you're a happy person. Right. And the bottom line is nobody can make another human mm-hmm. happy. I know parents don't like to hear that. You can love your child. You can be sensitive to them. People are happiest if they can handle their negative emotions. And so if you flip it and you say, what's the real role of a parent, of a young child? It's to help a child Mm -hmm. be upset, which seems so counterintuitive, which is how do you allow a child to throw themselves on the floor screaming because you don't have the goldfish snack that they wanted to eat and to really genuinely say to them, ah, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know that we were out of it. You can be upset and then let them be upset. Even in your head and you're saying, this is ridiculous. My child is so much in their life. How could they be upset about the goldfish snack? They Mm -hmm. could be right now because they're three or whatever age they are. Um, And then what's most important in that, whether they're upset about the big issues or the sandwich being cut wrong or the wrong color shirts, because the color shirt they imagine they don't even own, um, is that when they're done with that huge, intense, emotional outburst, the parent is there to say to them, I still love you and we're okay. So for some children, that's coming for a hug. For other children, they need to keep a distance and for the parent to just kind of smile or wink and say, I love you. Even when you are that upset, I still love you. Because it's a scary place to go emotionally for a child. And that's why I think parents get confused. They get angry um, because it's very arousing. It can be very arousing for parents. They get frustrated um, or they just want to take it away. And then you feel helpless because you can't Mm -hmm. take it away from a child. So it's really, I think, about parents trying to understand in whatever bandwidth they have left, because many people have very little bandwidth at the moment, um, it's all being used, is to reflect on themselves and say, what is it about my child's negative emotion that's yes. so upsetting to me? You know, what, what is it that it does to me, particularly with your firstborns? We tend to get better with latterborns. We tend to put the weight of the world and the weight of our baggage and past and everything else on our firstborns or on our first same-sex child, mm-hmm. whatever the issue is, right? But to say, how could I be a neutral 
factor in this to let my child know that it really is okay Mm -hmm. to have those emotions. Now, sometimes it is moving your child out of a space. It doesn't mean being totally hands-off. You know, it may be picking them up if they're young enough and saying, this isn't safe here, or I'm going to get you out of the playground to an easier spot. Or I always say, you know, before the pandemic, we used to go to restaurants with children. You take your child out, not for punishment so much, but to say, this isn't working. You know, I can't have you screaming in a restaurant, but we could go for a walk. And then the child can calm down. Um, But to know it takes a child, for some children with certain personalities and temperaments, it can take a while to calm down. That's not abnormal. Mm -hmm. For parents, being hard on themselves is a natural tendency. And then with the stressors of today, parents are even harder on themselves and feeling like they're letting their children down all the time, which I don't think parents are. You know, if you're getting through a day with some reasonable semblance of structure, even if it's not a lot of structure, but semblance of structure, and you're getting three meals at some kind of routine at a table and, you know, and your child's having some delightful playtime, and then they're going to sleep at a reasonable hour, you've done good. Right. Everybody's done good. So what are the boundaries about? The boundaries are really about backing off and saying, it's okay that my child gets upset sometimes. It's beautiful when my child's joyful and happy. Nobody can be joyful and happy all the time. And when you don't allow children to have the distress, they don't know how to handle it. And the strongest people going forward are the people who can handle frustration anger, sadness. It doesn't feel good to any of us. Let's face it. But if you can learn, oh, this is part of life. I won't be sad forever. I'm sad because I miss my friend or I'm sad because I didn't get the color Play-Doh I wanted today. Um, But it really is the parent's job to be there and help them be upset rather than taking it away. You can't learn to handle stress unless you experience stress. Yes. Um, and the other place I think parents are getting sort of confused is I hear people using the word trauma a lot. Yeah. Let's go for that. Yeah. And, you know, as someone like you or someone like myself who you currently work in trauma, I started my career in trauma and I was like, parents, like, I can tell you what real childhood trauma is and it's not good. And I'm not saying that it didn't happen to the parent or that there aren't plenty of children very sadly today who are being traumatized. But most children are not being traumatized right now by the pandemic, not for the parents who are listening to this podcast. They're stressed. The parents are stressed. There may be big financial worries. There may be food worries. There might be lots of moves. I mean, people are moving a lot. Um, schools closed, you know, there's a myriad of things going on, worries about people who are sick, loss, particularly grandparents. That's stressful. There's no question that's stressful. The days are stressful, but uncertainty is stressful. But that doesn't ruin a child. And I would like to rid parents of that sense that it's going to ruin their child as opposed to, wow, this is really stressful how do I give my child some narrative about what's going on? Maybe we need to talk about the virus again. Mm-hmm. Like at the beginning, there was a lot of talk about, I, I was saying to parents, you have to give a narrative. You have to give them, whether it's a two-year-old narrative or a five-year-old narrative, 
about why school closed and that everybody is safe and a little narrative about this virus that has a very funny name. Coronavirus is a very funny name, right? Yes. Um, and for older children, you know, looking up virus and things like that. But here we are many months into it. Children need an explanation again. I think we're forgetting. Ugh, why are we still not able to see grandma and grandpa? Mm-hmm. Why can't we go back to school? And to say to children, it's not your fault. It's really not your fault. It's nothing you did. It's not even mommy or daddy's fault on this one. <laughs> um, but we need to have a running narrative about how hard it is, about sadness, about anger. I mean, children should be angry that they can't go places they want to go, that they can't see people they want to see. They should be angry. Parents have a right to be angry too. But to talk about it and not expect children to just say, okay, oh, great. Thank you for the explanation. Now we're done. But to be able to sit with, this is really hard. You know, maybe there's tears, maybe there's anger. That's stress. Mm -hmm. And as we help children handle stress, you're actually shoring them up. You're helping the brain say, oh, that's stress. Oh, that's hard. Oh, now I can bring it down. And that's Mm -hmm. a parent's job really is to regulate the child in that way. But stress is different than trauma. And even a really stressed parent who's worrying terribly about finances and whether you're going to have to move because you can't keep your house or apartment or whatever it is, that's very stressful. But you can keep it from the child. You can still get up each day, let them play, let them you know, do whatever their routine is. That helps mitigate the stress. So will every child who's growing up right now have this in their life narrative? Absolutely. But every child who grew up in the depression has that in their life narrative. I'm raised by one of those people, right? And, mm-hmm. But he grew up with a narrative, my dad, of we weren't poor. I mean, I guess we didn't have money, but we had love. Like he says it all the time. We say, you didn't seem to be impacted by the depression. You know, it's like... Uh, But his father, when my grandfather was alive, would talk about the stress of not having a job and getting another job and not having a job. They kept it from their sweet little boy. And I think parents are doing that every single day. They're actually buffering the stress, even though they don't know that that's what they're doing. But if if, if you're sitting down for a dinner with your child and you're chatting about you know, what you saw out the window today, that's buffering them from the stress. Yes. And, and every single day that parents do that, they're helping them. It doesn't mean that there won't be bad days. There will be bad days. Mommy's stressed or daddy's stressed or they're both stressed and the child's stressed. But then you wake up tomorrow and you say, well, that was a hard day, but look, now it's a new day and it's sunny. Let's go play. That's helping children through the stress. So I think people have to be careful not to get caught up in this word trauma. Children do get traumatized. There's horrible traumas going on in the world, but it doesn't have to be that way, even in the pandemic for most children. You know, it's true. There have been a ton of articles, especially at the beginning of this, we're all like in a collective mourning and this, you know, every kid is experiencing some form of trauma and I, it has not been sitting well with me because I'm like, yeah, no, every kid is not experiencing trauma. They're experiencing stress and change, but not trauma. But I started to think I was going crazy at a certain point. I'm like, wait, there's definitely some bad stuff going on. And there are 
definitely some people experiencing trauma, but let's not, in fact, I feel like it's a, it's, it's a disservice to those who are experiencing trauma, not diminishing the stress or the difficulty that right. it's going through. And and it's a balance. Very, yeah. This is a very stressful time and it's going to continue to be. And uncertainty is almost harder than anything else, I think. It's a constant um, moving with the moment, which most of us actually aren't very good at. Mm-hmm. Right? And you know, I was thinking about the, this idea of stress or trauma. One of the children um, at our school was two and a half, very, very verbal, was very angry that school was closed and that she had to see everybody in the computer, very angry. And throwing major tantrums and you know, screaming that she wanted to go to school. And the mother finally took her by Barnard. The program I run is at Barnard College. Went to Barnard. This was like in June to show her that the gates were closed, to show her that nobody was there. So as much as I kept saying to parents, really, you've got to say to the child, you're not going to school. None of the children are going to school. None of the teachers, but everybody's safe at home. And that's why seeing people on the computer, even if your child only wanted to sit for 30 seconds, I thought was important to say, see your teacher's safe, your friend is safe, you know, with their brother and mommy and daddy or whoever they're with. But this child needed to see, and I think the mother was very tuned into it and then showed her it's all closed. All your toys are there. We sent a video home. I went into our classroom and videotaped it and walked through and narrated it to tell the children it was all still there. Wasn't their fault it had closed. Um, And then the mother said she wasn't happy, but she settled down a bit. And my point in this is that was very stressful. But do I think that's going to traumatize her for life? I don't think so. And I think it's a mother who can keep buffering it by saying to her over, over, remember, we went and it was closed and there was nobody there, not just you. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going right now, but everybody's okay. Maybe they go visit again to see that it's still closed. That's buffering something that's very stressful. And that's what children need. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to be perfect in it. Sometimes you're not going to know how to handle the stress or how to help the child. That's also okay. As long as that child knows my daddy is trying and he still loves me. You know, my mommy is here for me, even if she doesn't get what I'm upset about. That idea that you're here for them is the most potent thing you can give a young child. The most potent. I would love to read two listener questions and get your wisdom. So here is one. I haven't even read these, so that's not great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So I'm going to read this question um, from a listener. Hi there. I was wondering if you have some tips other than breathing to help a four and a half year old emotionally regulate. He's waking up so emotional every day and he can often cry for up to 45 minutes over simple things. Thank you so much. It's been impossible to get help. I think, yeah. I think a reference to because of the pandemic, not right. because of the topic. Right, right. So, you know, without knowing a child, it, it's a little hard, but... Um, you know, some children are very emotional. They take in a lot of the world. So these are good qualities to have, but hard qualities at this age. Children who kind of feel everything, you know, what they're seeing, what they're hearing, what they're literally feeling physically around their body. 
they take it all in, it's a lot. And their little brains don't quite know what to do with all of it. And they get totally overwhelmed. So that kind of child in a stressful time, like the pandemic, stress could be as simple as we live in a beautiful home, but mommy and daddy are home every day, which seems like it should be a good thing, but it's totally different. Mm. Um, And my school is closed for sure. That kind of child just feels the world and can't handle it all the time. So maybe they wake up on what we used to call, you know, the wrong side of the bed. They just wake up not feeling great. Then something sets them off, like you can't find a pair of shoes that they want. You know, you cut their toast wrong. And, you know, there's not a lot always that you can do. I think, um, you know, for some children, if you can predict when that's going to happen, not always perfectly predict it, but you know, when they're tired or if you miss a meal or the meal comes too late or if you have too many Zoom calls um, in, in the morning and, and your child feels like you're not with them. But if you can predict it a little, you can try to ward it off. But often you can't predict it. And the, the best thing to do is to say to a child, you're really, really, really upset and it's okay. And then they have their tantrum. And some children do go on for extended periods of time. It doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with them. It more means they're a four-year-old who's stressed. Mm -hmm. Some children really need to be held at those moments, tightly held. Other children don't want you anywhere near them in terms of holding them, but the parent has to stay close. So if you leave the room or you say, you know, when you're done, come get me, usually a child kind of panics because they feel like I've got these big emotions and now you've literally abandoned me, but you don't have to keep engaging them. You can say, I'm right here. You can be upset and I'm right here. The parent can also try doing something like, you know, before it completely escalates when the child's starting to get upset, if you can meet the emotion a little bit. So it's, let's say it's like the parent has cut the toast wrong and the child, you know, the child feels like, how dare you? And I can't handle this. And you say, oh, I do it wrong again. Oh, That made you so mad. So you have to kind of live in their mercurial little world for a moment. And you meet the emotion a little bit. I always talk about it as kind of grabbing the emotion like, oh, that made you so mad. You're not getting as angry as they are, but you're expressing some of it. That sometimes helps bring them down a little bit. And then maybe you give them something to throw. You want to throw this ball in the basket? Throw that, throw it hard. You want to stomp your feet? So you're giving them a way to get it out. Again, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But if you can meet that emotion a little bit, that actually helps regulate them because you're kind of grabbing it before it goes over the edge and helping it come down, helping them express it. Um, But for some children, once that switch goes off, you know, you see the brain literally gets flooded with that emotion. They can't turn it off. And, you know, asking them to breathe in a certain way or do something is just for naught at that point. And to let them have that tantrum. And then for the parent to say, what's my experience of this tantrum? Because if you can get to a place that says, he's got to have this tantrum, that's just his way of being. And then when he comes out of it, you make sure to have a reunion where you say, wow, you are so angry and frustrated. I still love you. I'm right here. That's really the key. Right. I still love you. I still love you. Oh, you're so mad. Because they're really frightened at that point. Could I push 
the most important people in my life away because I just expressed the biggest emotions any human could feel. Hi, Dr. Aliza. I have a really tough question. My husband and I have an almost three-year-old and a three-month-old. My husband and I are constantly bickering and arguing, and even in front of the kids at times. My question is, are parents better off arguing in front of the kids or keeping it for later? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because, well, I appreciate this mother's honesty. Um, but even if parents weren't arguing before COVID, there's probably a lot more arguing right now. Arguing in front of children is scary. There's no question. And part of it is that children aren't so great yet about understanding their own emotions, but they also feel very responsible for adults' emotions. That's particularly true of a firstborn child, but it's true of all children, but particularly firstborns, because they were born into the parents as their sole family before any other children came. So it's very scary for them. They feel like they caused it. They feel like they did something wrong. And they worry that either the parents are going to get upset with them or that they're going to lose the parents completely. They're going to lose their love. They're going to feel abandoned by them. So it's a very scary position for a child to be in. Often they'll try to intervene and say, you know, stop yelling, mom, your daddy, or they'll try to get in the middle, literally, let's hug. Um, And you don't want children to take on the role of being responsible for other people's emotions, particularly when they barely know their own emotions. So it's very scary for them. So arguing in front of children, if it happens on occasion, then you go back to your child and you say, you know, daddy or mommy got upset. We still love each other. You show the child, we still love each other. You hug each other or something. And then you say to the child, and you know, it's not your fault that daddy and mommy were arguing or that, you know, whoever was arguing, it's not your fault because children really need to be rid of that responsibility. But if it's going on a lot, that will definitely affect a child's well-being, who they become, how they understand emotions. So that's what marital counseling's for. Right, <laughs> and, uh, right. Even in the age of COVID, you can do that virtually. And it's very hard to have young children. So if you can get to some kind of support, uh, marital counselor, if you have some kind of you know, religious leader who you feel like is supportive, but you definitely need support if you're arguing a lot. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you did have a good time, don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. Have a great week.